I want to begin by reading a few verses from Psalm 2. I think I touched on this uh, last week or the week before. But we're beginning a new series tonight in the book of 1 Samuel. And it's a book all about a search for God's king. And Psalm 2 speaks about God's king as well. So I'll read these words before the band leader sings some song. The writer of Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take up their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, the king that the psalmist is speaking of is King Jesus, the king who was on the throne and is still on the throne because he beat death, he conquered sin and he rose again. So as we begin our service, let me pray and thank God for that wonderful truth. Heavenly Father, as we gather in your name this evening, ahead of a busy week, I pray that you would still our hearts and our minds, and that you give each of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus for ourselves every confidence that you are King. Even in a world where people defy you, left, right and centre, we thank you that you are King, that you have been installed on your throne. We thank you that you're the King who conquered death, who rose again, and through your Spirit gives us life. So, Father, we give you this service, we give you our praise and worship tonight, and particularly give you our song worship now. And we ask that it be honouring in your sight, and that you would be our teacher tonight, and help us as we gather together to learn and to praise your name. Amen. Fab, Elizabeth Law is going to come and read to us, so do grab a Bible. Um, We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. And uh, do just look that up and uh, Elizabeth will read to us. Thank you. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Bathsheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. 
Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone, go back to your own town. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Uh, you might be wondering, we're starting this new series in 1 Samuel. Why are we starting in chapter 8? Um, partly it's just so that the series isn't too, too long. But basically, um, 1 Samuel starts with effectively the last judge, a guy called Samuel. And it's, uh, it tells the story of his birth and then his call from God. And he's really preparing the way for what's to come later. And then what happens is Samuel rises up as the last judge over Israel. Um, so too do the enemies of God. And this particular time of history, the great enemy for God's people is the Philistines. Uh, probably most famous for um, uh, David, the David and Goliath story, which we're going to come to later. Um, but we're starting in chapter 8 because chapter 8 of 1 Samuel really begins um, all the discussion in 1 Samuel about a king. And that's what this series is all about. So do have a read through the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel um, at home later this week just to give you a head start. But uh, we feel it would be a good place to start in chapter 8. And we're going to be doing this series now through to the end of the summer. There are a couple of moments where we'll take some little breaks to do one or two other things. But largely this is where we're going to be. And it's a really great book. Um, I think it's quite a hard book. Hard book for us to engage with, but I pray it will be a good one for us. Uh, Wellesley this morning when he's leading um, helps us just with a little tee-up of uh, what the book of 1 Samuel is about. It's really, uh, these pictures aren't very cryptic, it's really a book that speaks of a search for God's king, a king who has a heart after God. Uh, it's a book of hope and despair. Things go well, things go very, very badly. And it's a book that, through which God is teaching us all uh, what it looks like to trust him through all the ups and downs of our life. So I pray it will be a really good book for us to look at together. Um, there will be various people um, preaching through it. Um, some of the preaching team are going to be uh, preaching different chapters as well, which we're really looking forward to. So that's kind of where we're going to go over the next few weeks. Um, but because we're jumping in and because we were in Genesis and it's sort of a shift of gears, we now jump to 1 Samuel. I thought it would be helpful just to tee up kind of where Samuel fits in the whole Bible. 
Um, during the little series we did on, in Genesis, the last talk, um, I was trying to help us see that um, history, in, in many ways, is his story. All history is God's story, God's story for his world. And uh, we looked at this little verse uh, last week. When God judged Adam and Eve for their sinfulness, he judged Adam, he judged Eve, he judged the serpent. This was, I guess, a, a mixture of a promise and a command that was given to Satan by God. And he said this in chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity, that's a kind of striving or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now this is a really, really key verse. We're going to come back to it. But what it's saying is right back there at the beginning of the world when everything went wrong, God made a promise to one day sort out the mess. And the mess was going to be sorted out by God's king who would come. And Satan would seek to strike at the heel of God's king. But God's king would crush Satan under his head. So really 1 Samuel is a, a book all about um, searching for God's king, searching for God's leader. And that's where we're going to get to. Just to, to show you how this all fits in. The book of Joshua, quite famous for Joshua and his friend Caleb, who led God's people after they had been uh, delivered from slavery in Egypt, Joshua leads God's people into Canaan. And Canaan is this amazing fertile land. It's full of resources. It's bountiful. It's full of wealth. It's pretty developed. But as God's people get into Canaan, it's um, a very attractive place. And there's a great lure of idolatry, uh, serving false gods that promise so much but never deliver. So God's people who are in slavery because of their sin are very close to getting back into slavery again as they get tempted by the false gods of this foreign land. Then you get to the book of Judges. If you have a Bible, it would be helpful for you just to turn back to the book of Judges because understanding Judges is crucial if you're going to understand 1 Samuel. So just flick backwards in your Bible. You'll hit Ruth. Keep going. And then you get to Judges. I just want to point out a couple of verses which will help kind of tee up what's going on here. So have a look at right at the beginning, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. You get a kind of edit from the writer who tells us the state of God's people at this time. And the writer tells us, chapter 2 of Judges, a whole generation grew up who did not know God. So that the, God's people are not long in the promised land. They're in the place that God wanted to bring them to bring blessing to them. But very quickly... He makes the point that a whole generation grew up who didn't know the Lord. They become godless. Then chapter 2 verse 16, what God does is he raises up judges. Judges are effectively kind of temporary rescuers who God puts in place to help God's people. And there were 12 of them in all. And the judges come in and they rescue God's people from their enemies, deliver them for a time. And then God's people slip back into their habits of sin. They need rescuing again. And so God raises up another judge and so on. And the pattern goes on. But look at chapter 2, verse 17. Most often, these judges that were sent by God to be a blessing for God's people were ignored. And then verse 19 of chapter 2, we read that if we ignore the spokespeople God send, it's effectively the same thing as ignoring God himself. And so there's this quick pattern of, of returning to sin again. And so just as we had the little edit at the beginning of Judges, in those days the whole generation grew up who didn't know God. Right at the end of Judges, if you flick forward to chapter 21, you get another little edit. 
And it's really the low point in the history of God's people because Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, the book ends almost with a tear in the writer's eye. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. It's a desperately, desperately low time in the history of the nation of Israel. But then you might wonder, what's this little book Ruth doing? It's kind of tucked in there before Samuel. Because one Samuel picks up the story from the back of Judges. But at that time, in all of that mess of the Judges, there was a little glimmer of hope. And you get this wonderful book called Ruth. And in it, it teaches all sorts of things. But one of the main things it teaches us right at the end is, here is a man, a faithful man, who fears God called Boaz. And he marries a foreign woman called Ruth. And they come together. And then right at the end of the book of Ruth... You'll see there in the last few verses that we read that one of their offspring would later be David. And that's hugely significant. In the mess of Judges, there was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A little glimmer of hope. A faithful man comes together with a foreign woman and they later give birth. And eventually a son that was to come would be King David. And he becomes hugely important. So then we get to the book of 1 Samuel, which we're looking at together. And 1 Samuel is really preparation for God's leader, a king for God's people. Uh, And as we saw at the beginning, it's a book that will teach us what it means to trust in God and uh, to serve God even when life gets difficult, even when we don't understand what's going on. Uh, The real pattern through the whole Old Testament, if you can just get this in your head, it will really help you. The pattern is God's people turn their back on God, they sin, they face God's judgment God then in his grace delivers them. God's people turn back to him and say sorry. But very quickly the cycle begins again. And this cycle just carries on all the way through the Bible. And so we get to 1 Samuel. Um, One of my favorite books that I often um, pass on to people is this little book here called Legacy. 15 uh, Lessons in Leadership. It was written by a guy who was fascinated by the All Blacks rugby team. Um, I'm fascinated by that team because they're the most successful team in history. And uh, this guy called James Kerr just followed the All Blacks and just wrote about them. And what I I love is in the opening chapter, it's a chapter all about character. And the opening chapter begins with this. Never be too big to do the small things that need to be done. Sweep the sheds. And it tells a story of the captain in the New Zealand rugby team who after training went into the sheds where they got changed and he was the one who got out the brush and he swept up the mud that the rubber boots had created. There was no looking to the cleaner to do it. There was no looking to the coach to do it. He was the leader of the team. So he stepped up and he served his team. This is a really, really cracking book which talks about servant leadership. But the big problem we're going to see in 1 Samuel is that the leaders that God's people want are godless, absolutely godless. So have a look at chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. I'm going to read from the beginning. Samuel grew old. He appointed his son as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. And here's the key thing, verse 3. But his sons did not follow his ways They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So if I was to ask you, what is their leadership of God's people is characterized by? What would you say? 
their leadership was all about them. It was all about them and what they wanted. It wasn't about what they could do to serve other people. The heart of true leadership is about serving and about being a blessing to others. But God's people, the leaders of God's people, were doing the complete opposite. So, verse 4, All the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Samuel, you are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. And do you notice they ask for two things. They say, now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now if you just look at those verses on the screen from Deuteronomy 17, God had anticipated that when his people get into the promised land, they would ask for a king. Do you notice at the beginning, he says, when you enter the land that God has given you, you say, let us set a king over us. So God knew that his people would ask for a king. It was anticipated in the law, Deuteronomy 17. But what instruction had he given them then about the sort of king that they were to appoint? Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. But we're going to see in 1 Samuel, that's exactly what doesn't happen. Verse 6, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Now why would it displease him? Because God had raised up Samuel to be the leader of God's people. And the people said, oh, Samuel's old and his sons are leading us in a bad way. We want our own king. Just as a little aside, this isn't the main point of this passage, but if you ever feel snubbed in life, like Samuel would have felt snubbed, he was the leader and people said, we don't want you as our leader, we want a different leader. I wonder how you respond. So often in life when we get snubbed, when we get hurt, either through the fault of someone else or through circumstance, there's all sorts of different ways we can respond. Some people just recoil and go very quiet and just slip away. Other people get very vocal and very angry. Some people go sideways, want to talk it out. There's all sorts of different ways that in, in our human emotions we react to being snubbed in life. But do you notice how Samuel reacts? Just look at this. It's a little aside, but look at verse 6. He's displeased by their question, verse 6, but then it says, so he prayed to the Lord. I think there's a really good little lesson for us there, that in life, whenever any of us face something that is difficult, our first reaction should be to turn to God in prayer. It's not the natural reaction, but I think it's a wise one. This little book on prayer um, speaks about cynicism. And uh, one of the things in one of the chapters is saying that cynicism kills your prayer life. And so I just want to read to you this little page because I hope it will encourage us whenever we face a discouragement in life like Samuel did. The writer said, Cynicism kills hope. The world of the cynic is fixed and immovable. The cynic believes we're swept along by forces greater than we are. Dreaming feels like foolishness. Risk becomes intolerable. Prayer feels pointless, as if we're just talking to the wind. Why set ourselves up for failure? Why bother praying at all? But Jesus is all about hope. Watch what he says before he helps these people. Before he heals the blind man, he tells his disciples, this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Before he raises the widow of Nan's son, he says, weep not. Reversing the ancient Jewish funeral dirge, weep all that are bitter of heart. When Jairus told Jesus that his daughter is dead, Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. 
Before Jesus heals a crippled woman, he says, woman, you're freed from your disability. In each of these accounts, Jesus brings hope before he heals. He's not a healing machine. He touches people's hearts, healing their souls before he heals their bodies. Hope begins with the heart of God. As you grasp what the Father's heart is like, how he loves to give, then prayer will begin to feel completely natural to you. I just thought there was some real wisdom in that. That in life when we get snubbed like Samuel does, let's turn to God in prayer because he knows our heart. And if we recoil and just mull things over in our heart quietly or if we explode and let it all out to other people, God knows all those things anyway. And he just says, come to me. And I said that is a, a, a side. It's not what the passage is about, but there's a, a good bit of wisdom in that. But notice how God responds to Samuel who prays to him. He says, verse 7, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. The great problem with the people of Israel, particularly with their leaders who were godless, is they were all leading to this great substitution, substituting God for a false god. And it was the false gods of the land of Canaan in particular that God's people were trusting in for their hope. And they thought, well, the judges have failed us. They've not ultimately delivered us. What we need is a king. And what sort of king do we need? A king like the other nations. And God has said, no, you don't need a king like the other nations. You're meant to be a different nation, completely different. You don't need a king like the other nations. You need my king. But God's people said, no, I know better. And so they went after their own king. You know, in our life, we live in a culture that... Uh, kind of is obsessed with insurance. It's right and proper to be prudent with our money, to be wise, to have a certain degree of security that money can buy. But in our culture, with this obsession with pensions and life insurance and health insurance and home insurance, these things are good things, but we've got to be very careful as Christians that we don't depend on them for our ultimate security. Because that's a very fickle security. In chapter 4, God's people relied on the ark. They said, if we have the ark of the covenant, we'll win the battles. Well, the ark represented the presence of God with his people. But it wasn't the ark that won them the battles. It was God. In chapter 8, they're relying on a king. If we had a king, if only we had a king like the other nations, then we'd be successful like they are. But the problem with all this is, for God's people, you have to ask them the question, where does God fit into all of this? They'd become a godless nation and there was no place for God. And here's the really hard truth, is that just like Israel, if you and I substitute God for a false God, look what happens, verse 9. Now listen to them, God says, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Verse 11, he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. Now I'd like you to just skim through verses 11 to 16. What's the one word that comes up time and time and time again? Say again. 
Good, his does come up. So it's drawing attention to this king. That's not the word I was looking for, but it's a good word. Take. Brilliant. You might have it slightly different in different translations. Do you see in verse 11? He will take your sons. 13, he will take your daughters. 14, he will take the best of your fields. 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. 16, he will take for his own use. 17, he will take a tenth of your flock. Well, what's the result of all this? They've asked for a king to rule and look after them. This king instead rules over them. And all he does is takes and takes and takes. And verse 17 says, And you yourselves will become his slaves. Then verse 18, When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Here's the great irony in the passage. They're choosing a king, their own king, the king they want, who they think will deliver them freedom. But all that king does is takes and takes and takes, and they're back into slavery, the very place they've just been rescued from. The great substitution you see all the way through the Bible, and you'll see in your own life, is that every time we take anything... And it becomes God in our life. God gets substituted. And the really hard truth is that we become slaves to whatever it is that we choose to serve in his place. And here's here's where it gets even more shocking. Even when this happens, even when Samuel warns them of what's going to happen, notice what they say in complete defiance, verse 19. But the people refuse to listen to Samuel. No. We want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. And why the book of 1 Samuel is so frightening and why it's so sad is that God in his wisdom gives them what they ask for. Verse 21, when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. One of the really hard truths that we have to grapple with in our own hearts, uh, we have to grapple with particularly for the hearts and lives of those that we love, who we pray for, who don't know God, is that when a person or when we substitute God for another God, and we persistently say, no, this is what I want as my king in my life, there comes a point where God gives us over to what we want. He doesn't do it by sort of saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Never mind, just have that God. It could be me. He does it with a tear in his eye. He does it with a heavy heart. But he says, if you really want to serve this king, serve him. I can't stop you. But that king will enslave you. And so here where he gives a king to Israel, it's not a sign of God's blessing on them. Have a king, he's going to look after you. It's actually a sign of God's judgment. Have the king that you want. But he's a king who's just going to take and take and take. And he'll rule over you and you're going to be in more slavery than you already are now. Just to think about your own prayers. Uh, God in his sovereignty sometimes gives us something we haven't asked for in our prayer. He's just a good God who blesses us. I don't know if you've experienced a blessing and you weren't expecting it. He's good. But if you also notice in your prayers, sometimes in God's wisdom, he doesn't give you something you ask for. And that can be unbelievably hard, particularly if you're asking for a good thing. 
But sometimes in God's judgment, he also gives us something that we've asked for. If we want a king that's not him, he says, okay, have that king. But you'll be enslaved to that king and it won't satisfy your soul. Now that's heavy. That's hard to hear. That's beginning of 1 Samuel. You'll think, well, this is pretty dreadful. I thought judges ended badly. Well, 1 Samuel's getting even worse. But a lot more short, uh, short, but look at the hope that comes because it's not all bad news. Just as the problem was godless leaders, look at the solution. Because the great solution is that God provides his king. Go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel. Think about Samuel, who is the last judge who God raised up to lead his people before Israel asked for their own king. If you go back to chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, do you notice how Samuel is described? Chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 10. Just have a look. We get a lovely picture here of the heart of a leader that God can use. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, The Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. The kind of heart of a leader that God can use is someone who's available. Here I am. I just want to serve you. And look at verse 10. The Lord came and stood there, calling um, as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. So the kind of heart that God wants for his people is a person who's available and a person who is listening to his voice. And how's his ministry described? That's his character. How's his ministry described? If you just skip forward to chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then get rid of yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines so his message having been available to God having received the word of God his message is a message to his people listen to God's voice turn back to him and then in chapter 7 verse 16 from year to year he went on the circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah judging Israel in all these places Now don't mistake this word judge. He's not going around judging like a judge would, pointing a finger. Judging here means leading God's people in justice and righteousness. So here was a leader who had a heart for God and he was leading God's people. But the really sad thing is what happened to God's leader? We saw it in chapter 8, didn't we? He got snubbed. Here was the leader that God had raised up and God's people said, oh, you're old and your sons are not leading us in the right way. We want our own leader. We want our king. But we saw in chapter 8, verse 7, didn't we? When you reject the leader that God has given, you reject God himself. Why are we focusing so much on Samuel? It's because Samuel, as the last judge, was the one who was going to appoint Israel's first king. And Israel's first king was Saul. And we see that he's anointed by Samuel in chapter 9. And we'll go there next week. Well, Saul, as Israel's first king, starts really, really well. But gradually through his ministry, his servant heart gets replaced increasingly with a godless heart. And so as Saul starts well and is in decline, so instead God raises up another leader who starts very small, David. But he raises up to be a man after God's own heart. 
And of course, who is David, the great king, foreshadowing? He's preparing the way for the even greater king who's going to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is the great king to come described? In Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, a voice from heaven says to him, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus has just healed a mute and deaf man, and the people are amazed and they go, He has done all things well. And then in John 18, when Jesus is speaking to those who are going to arrest him, he says, My kingdom is from another place. The point about God's true king is he's a completely different king to all the kings that we're going to see through the history of Israel. Kings who, some of whom were good, some were bad, but they all failed. But they were all pointing the way to God's great king who never failed, Jesus Christ. And so as we journey through the book of 1 Samuel, this term together, what we're really doing is we're searching for God's king. And all the way through, we're going to see a contrast And in our passage today, the contrast is is that of verse 9. The king who's going to come and rule over Israel, who would claim as his rights and take, take, take. Versus God's true king who gave up his rights and surrendered everything to die on a cross. I want to close by reading a, a very familiar passage from the book of Philippians. You don't need to turn to it, but you can if you like. But it's just a lovely picture of God's true servant king, the one who all the other kings are pointing to and the one who addresses the failure of all the other kings of Israel. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage but being himself nothing he made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to see through the book of 1 Samuel that there is a king who is worth serving. There is a king who is worth following and his name is Jesus. We see there on the screen what happened to that king, the one who was despised and rejected by men, the holy one, the righteous one, the author of life who we've killed. And uh, we're going to sing a song now, Majesty, which is our way in a prayer of reflecting on Jesus Christ being king. We're, We're singing this to him, saying, you are my majesty, you are my king. And it will prepare us, our hearts, for sharing the Lord's Supper together and reflecting on the great sacrifice of our King in our place. So take a moment of quiet and then Amy and the guys will lead us shortly.